Would you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 139? We'll be looking at this passage of Scripture this morning. As you turn there, I want to uh, give thanks to Pastor Ron for speaking the last couple weeks as I've had a chance to take a break. And uh, it's a joy to be able to share the pulpit ministry and have others who can do that so well. And I know many of you were blessed by the message he shared uh, after the bridge collapse in Minneapolis and just talking about that, looking at Scripture and the application uh, of that. And I, I was very grateful for that as well. Uh, it's always good to be back, though, and I'm looking forward to sharing with you from this text this morning. Uh, today is a special day for our church. Uh, we call it Prepare with Prayer. And to those of us who are the staff and leaders here at the church, this is a very important day because we know that we can't accomplish anything of lasting significance without God's blessing on our ministry. It's God who does the work in and through us, and so we need to ask for His favor, His guidance, His power to work in and through us. And God's the one who changes hearts and lives. We just get the privilege of being a part of that. And Jesus Himself uh, talked about that as well when He said in John chapter 15 that I'm the vine and you are the branches. If a man abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's, that's why we come on a day such as this to ask you to join us in praying for the church, for the ministries and the preparation that we have. And right now as we meet, there are going to be people walking the building and doing prayer walks. And I encourage you to do the same thing in the second hour, to stay and go down to the youth center for a concert of prayer and then take the time to walk through our ministry, uh, walk through our building, pray for different ministries and things that will be going on, and ask God to bless and guide us this year. So this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 139 in the context of prayer. And I'm not going to read it as we begin, but instead I'm going to read it as we go through it section by section uh, and talk about that. And so I want to begin by asking you a question. How do you pray when you pray? You know, there are different ways that people pray and different things that you may have been learned or you may have learned or been taught over the years. And some people come and they pray generic prayers. They pray prayers like God bless America. Well, that's a good thing to say, but what does that really mean? And what would that look like if God were to bless America? What do you mean by that? That's not very specific. It's kind of general. Some people pray memorized prayers. Maybe as a child, you learned a prayer like, Now I lay me down to sleep. And you prayed that every night before you went to bed. Memorized prayers can be good. They can teach us some things about prayer. But if that's all we pray, we're missing out on what God wants us to experience. The same is true of written prayers. Some people pray written prayers like, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Those are good prayers. I have books on prayer. I read those because I want to learn from others on how they pray. And there are some very powerful written prayers that can enhance our own prayer life. But again, if that's all we're praying, we're really kind of using somebody else's prayers when God wants to hear from you and me. Some people just pray safe prayers. Prayers like, well, be with so-and-so, or bless the missionaries, or God, would you watch over. And those two are good to a point, but there's much more. You see, I believe that God wants us to pray prayers that are honest, that are specific, 
and that are bold prayers. Prayers that come from our heart. Prayers that have passion in them. Prayers that are concerned about individuals, a church, a community, a nation. Prayers that are asking God to display His power and glory as only He can do. Those are prayers that go beyond our own creature comforts. They are prayers for the kingdom of God. Many of you know the name of Francis Asbury. Some of you have heard of Asbury Seminary, for example, that was named after him. Well, when Asbury was 13 years old, he began asking his parents about the Methodists. He had heard about the Methodists, and this is 250 years ago, and at that time the Methodists were kind of viewed as a cult. You know, who is this, this new group of believers that have kind of come on the scene? And so Francis Asbury was curious about that, and so his mom took him to church at a Methodist church service. They went to a nearby town in Wensbury so he could see for himself, and he was particularly impressed by the spontaneity of what took place in that service. It wasn't liturgical, it was more free and open. And he noticed that the people were so devout. The men and women would kneel down at times when they prayed. They would say amen in the service. They would participate in that way. When he heard them sing, he said the singing was so vibrant and so sweet, the sound, that he came back saying, this was not church. This was better. This was better. He commented upon the preacher. The preacher had no prayer book. And yet he prayed so wonderfully. And what was more extraordinary, the man had no sermon book that he read from, but he gave a sermon that was based upon the text of Scripture. And he spoke freely from that. This was not church, he said. This was better. This was coming from the heart. He was so impressed by it that it was not long after that that Francis Asbury, through a friend, kneeled and asked Jesus Christ to be his Savior and Lord too. At age 17, he would become a Methodist minister. He would travel constantly for 45 years, covering about 300,000 miles, mostly on horseback. He crossed the Appalachians more than 60 times. He literally had no home of his own, no place that he called his own. Instead, he traveled and took shelter wherever he could. When he came to America in 1771, there were about 300 Methodists and four ministers all on the Atlantic seaboard. But at the time of his death in 1816, the Methodist church had spread to every state. More than 214,000 people now called themselves Methodists. Asbury had ordained more than 4,000 Methodist ministers, and he had preached more than 16,000 sermons. Francis Asbury knew how to pray and how to ask God for great things for the kingdom of God. And he spread his word wherever he could. When I look at this scripture, which is attributed to David as the author of it, King David was also a man of prayer who knew how to be honest with God and how to pray about the concerns of his heart. And we see that when David was down, he said that. And he came before the Lord when he was angry about something. You can hear his anger and his sense of wanting justice on God's part. When he was rejoicing, he really rejoiced. And he would dance before the Lord. And he would celebrate what God had done. So I want to look at this psalm this morning and ask the question, what does this psalm have to say to us about prayer? 
And I believe if you were going to get the nutshell of this message, it is this, that we can pray with confidence because of who God is. We can come, we can pray with confidence because of the things that this scripture tells us about God. First of all, God is all-knowing. The word that theologians use and you have heard before is that God is omniscient. And we see that in the first stanza, verses 1 to 6. And God's omniscience here is not expressed as some dry doctrine. It is expressed in wonder and adoration. And it is personally applied. Listen to what the scripture says. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before you've laid your hand upon me. And such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. When David considered who God is and his knowledge of his life, he was in awe. God, you know everything about me. You know everywhere I've ever gone in my life. You know everything I've done. You know when I'm sitting down at home. You know when I'm going out on the road. You know when I'm uh, just, whether for us, put it in our circumstances, you know, you know when I'm watching TV or when I'm working or when I'm with my family or when I'm traveling. You know everything about me. You know my thoughts. Even before I express them in words, you know what I'm thinking in my heart. You know it completely. You see, God's knowledge is perfect. God knows all things, and He knows them exhaustively. God doesn't need a teacher. There's never anything He needs to learn. He doesn't need a teacher to teach Him about things. He knows all things, all subjects, all matter of life exhaustively. A.W. Pink wrote this. He said, God knows everything. Everything possible everything actual, all events, all creatures of the past, the present, and the future. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, in earth, and in hell. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing can be hidden from him. Nothing is forgotten by him. He never errs, never changes, never overlooks anything. But the thing that impressed the psalmist the most... The thing that amazed David was that God knows me. How can that be? God, you know me. And you know everything about me. There are some six billion people in the world. And yet he knows your name in every detail of your life. He knows everything about us, our past, our future. He knows our hurts and our sorrows. He knows our worries and our concerns. He knows our habits. He knows our gifts, our talents. He knows our faith, and He knows our failures. He knows our sin, past, present, and future. And yet He loves us unconditionally, and He sent His Son to die for us, and He's demonstrated that love for us. For those of us that have come to know Him as our Savior, we stand in wonder and amazement that Jesus our King would die for us. No wonder 
David wrote in verse 6 that such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too lofty for me to attain. God, I can't understand it all, but I can praise You for it, and I can stand and I can worship You. You see, this is the best way to do theology. He's talking about something that is very profound that theologians have wrestled with, the omniscience of God. And yet the way that David applies it is to me. This makes a difference in my life because God knows you and He knows me and He knows our heart. And so when we come before Him in prayer, we're not saying anything that surprises Him. But we're also not talking about anything that doesn't concern Him because He cares about you and me and what's going on in our life. Some people wrestle with that and and they ask the question then, well, well, why should we pray if God knows it all already? I mean, if He knows what I'm going to say before I say it, why should I pray about it? Well, Jesus answered that at least in part in Matthew 6, verses 6 to 8, when He said, But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard for their many words. But do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So pray like this, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And he taught them to pray what we call the Lord's Prayer. You know what he's saying is that we should pray because God knows our needs. We should come before Him because He's aware of what's going on in our life. And that should actually give us confidence to pray. Just don't be long-winded in that. You don't have to pray long, elaborate prayers and think that that's what you need to be heard on high. Or that you have to keep praying over and over and over again. Sometimes God does call us to pray persistently and to keep on asking. And there are other times, and you may have experienced this too, when you pray about something and God has given you an assurance in your heart that that prayer was answered. It's settled. It's done. God has done that, and He's moved. And I think God does both of those kinds, to develop our faith and to teach us to trust. But why does He involve us in prayer when He knows what we're going to ask before we come to Him even? Why does He involve us in ministry when He could do things a lot better Himself? I think it's the same reason that a parent asks a child to do, say, chores around the house or to participate in the family. You know, we ask our kids to mow the lawn or take out the trash or wash the dishes or other things there. And When they're first learning how to do those things, I remember when when our oldest son was young and I had him mow for the first time, you know, and I looked out at the yard, there were gaps where the grass was still tall. You know, he had mowed it, but he had kind of not overlapped. And so you're looking out here on this yard and there are those gaps. And so you use that as a teaching opportunity. That was great, you know, you mow the whole yard, but you kind of miss a few things, and maybe next time you learn to overlap the wheel and do it again. And, you know, you, you do things like that. Why? Not to torture the kids, you know. They might think you're asking too much, but you're doing these things because you want them to become mature adults. You want them to learn to be responsible, to learn to work, and to see the joy of a job well done. 
In the same way God asks us to participate with Him even though we sometimes mess things up and don't do it quite as well as we should because He wants us to grow in our relationship with Him, to grow in our faith, to share in the joy of what He's doing in the world. And I tell you, when we see God work, I mean, every time you hear the story of somebody's conversion, don't you just rejoice in your heart? When you see someone that you've been praying for and their life has changed and you had an opportunity to be a part of that, to share the good news or to be a friend and to help them to come to know Christ and you see their life change, there's joy in our heart. God could do that totally on His own apart from you and me. But He chooses to use us so that we might share in the blessing. A second reason why we should pray is because God is present everywhere. He is omnipresent, the theologians say. God is with us. That's the promise Jesus gave to the disciples when He gave them the Great Commission and sent them out in the world. He said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We place our faith in a God who is with us. And David said, you know, when he looked at this aspect of God's character... He said, you know what? There's no place I can go that you are not there. Look at verses 7 to 12. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, in Sheol, literally, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, that's a metaphor for the east. If I settle on the far side of the sea, you can think of Israel where it is, and he's looking to the west over the Mediterranean Sea. He's going, doesn't matter. If I go as high as I can go, as low as I can go, if I go to the east or to the west, God, you are there. Even there your hand will guide me, and your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. doesn't matter. Day or night, wherever I travel, God is there. Those words should be a tremendous comfort to us. It does tell us we cannot hide from God. But why would we want to? The reason some men want to hide is because they want to conceal their sin. They, they think maybe, you know, if I hide or I do this in secret or darkness or inside my own house or someplace where God isn't there that He won't see. But God sees it all. There's nothing we can hide from Him. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, He said, this is the verdict. That light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. It's two different ways to live, isn't it? You see, the unbeliever wants to deny God's existence and hide from Him. But the believer finds great comfort in God's presence. I know when I go on a mission trip and I go to other parts of the world, I am comforted in knowing that God has already gone there before me. That He is there. And He is doing His work in the lives of people that I don't even know yet. 
And when we pray, and we pray for those that are involved in missions, we pray for those that we have had a part in helping to send out, like what Jenny shared this morning, our prayers touch the lives of people that are in other parts of the world, even though we may never know them until heaven. And we are here, and we are simply praying, God, would you use, as we have prayed for Jenny or Diane or others working in other parts of the world, God, would you use them to touch the lives of others? Would you open up their hearts and draw them to Christ? Would you raise up laborers for the harvest? Those prayers are heard on high because God is there. You see, our God is not like the pagan deities whose power was limited to the hills or rivers or valleys or plains. That's what they thought. That's what the Canaanites thought, that there were gods in the hills and there are gods on the plains and there are gods who govern the storm and the rain and there are gods who govern the sun. And they thought you had to kind of get to know all of these different deities and cover the bases. And there are still people in our world today who have that kind of mindset and other cultures in other lands that look at gods as someone that you need to kind of pray to each of these and figure this out, how you cover your bases. What the psalmist is saying is that our God is everywhere and He is sovereign. He is the Lord of all. The gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So pray with confidence. Thirdly, He tells us our God is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. The one we come before in prayer can change hearts. He can change the world. He's chosen to move in response to our prayers. We see that in verses 13 to 18. And again, I want you to understand how personal it is. When David looks at his creative ability, God as creator, he's not just talking about some abstract thing. But he's talking about God's work even in his own life. Verse 13, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful and I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, all your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. David again expressing his amazement that God knows me because he made me. He is expressing again his Uh, love for God and his amazement because God not only is the creator of everything in the universe, but God created me. You know, we think about God's creation of us. God made us male and female. He made us spiritual and physical. We have a body, a soul, and spirit. We each have a unique personality and appearance. We have a unique uh, talent and gift mix. There's no one else exactly like you, even if you are an identical twin. You have your own unique set of experiences and opportunities. And David expresses that by saying, you know, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. 
I love that phrase. You could take that phrase and you could meditate on that all day today. What does that mean to think that we are fearfully and wonderfully made? It is an apologetic for the existence of God. David is not just saying, you know, look at the heavens and see what God has made in terms of the universe. He's saying, look at your own body. Think about your own soul and mind. Think about your hands and the way that they function. Think about your brain and how complex that is and how does that work. Or the eye, the ability to see and to comprehend images and somehow have all that data transferred to our brain and be interpreted so that we visually connect with our world. Think about what it takes when you go out just to play catch in the backyard with your son or daughter. And you're out there and you're playing catch and you're seeing that ball come in at a certain speed and trajectory and and you calculate all of those things, thousands of calculations going on in your mind so that you can simply catch a ball, grab it, and throw it back again. And you think nothing of that. I mean, it's just what we do. We are fearfully and wonderfully made because of God's handiwork in our life. And David praises him. We were woven together in the depths of the earth. That's just a metaphor for the secret place, the womb. He's not talking literally about being made in the center of the earth. He's talking about this in a poetic way. We were made in that secret place inside our mother's womb. And who saw us there? God did. And who fashioned us? God did. You see, this is a powerful statement of how our God sees the unborn child. That life within a mother is a baby. It's not tissue. It's not something that can be discarded. It's life given by God. It's an unborn child. That's why we as a church, as believers, as Christians, are pro-life. I mean, that's not the focus of this passage, but that is a very strong statement about God's care for the unborn child and for each one of us. Not only did He make us and fashion us, but isn't it amazing when the Scripture says He knows all of the days ordained for us before one of them came to be. He knows our life. He knows the beginning and the end of it. And we are in His thoughts and in His hands continually. David says, Whether I am awake or asleep, I am with thee. God, thank you. Fourthly, we are to pray to God because God is all holy. He is holy, holy, holy. In verses 19 to 24, this is where the psalm takes a sharp turn. And sometimes people are troubled by it because here David has been praising God and recounting these things that are part of his attributes. And then comes this prayer This prayer that doesn't seem very nice in some ways. When in verse 19 he says, God, if only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. What is David doing here? David has been hurt by sinful men. But David has also seen what wicked men have said 
and done to God. And David's zeal here is not just personal. He is concerned for God's holiness and His justice. And he's crying out. He's saying, God, I don't get it. How can you let these men do these things? God, won't you put an end to it? Won't you destroy the wicked and make your name great? There's a tension here, isn't there? In the New Testament, we are told to love our enemies and to pray for them or to pray for those who may even persecute us. We are to bless and curse not. But in our hearts sometimes, you know, it's hard to bless a terrorist, isn't it? It's hard to bless those who are persecuting Christians around the world. It's hard to bless those that you may not really like. There's a tension here for all of us. And when I look at this, I see David is being honest with God about his feelings and expressing what he feels. He is being passionate for God's holiness and his justice. But David is also being honest about himself. And so he prays in verses 23 and 24, God, search me and know my heart and test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, this is how I feel. You ever feel like that? You ever feel angry or upset about something and you come before God? Maybe you're even mad at God. You don't understand why he did this or why he allowed this to happen in your life. It's okay to come and bring that before God and express what you're feeling. But also we need to pray like David prayed. God, if my attitude stinks or my heart is wrong, change me. Change me. And forgive me for my sins too. What a great prayer that is. To be honest enough with God that you express what you're really feeling, but to be open and teachable enough with God to say, God, work in me, because I'm a sinner too, and I ask for your forgiveness and grace in my life. You see, we can pray with confidence because of who God is, because He is all-knowing, He is aware of our needs and circumstances, because He is ever-present, He is with us wherever we go, Because He is all-powerful, He can change our circumstances or He can give us the grace to go through our circumstances. And because He is all-holy, we can come before Him and pray for His justice in our world. And we can pray for His holiness in our life. What I'm asking you to do today is to take some time to pray for our church, our ministries, To pray for yourself and your heart and your relationship with God as well. But to ask for God's blessing on our church and all we do in the year ahead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words of Scripture written by David so long ago that speak so beautifully of who you are. God, may we meditate on this passage of Scripture and may we apply it to our life even as David did. May we come before you to ask for your blessing, your favor on our life, our church, our work, our homes. Lord, help us to honor you in all that we do. And where there is sin in us, Father, forgive us and change us and make us more and more like your Son.
We pray it for his honor and glory. Amen.